Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hey guys, we are back with another episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. Um, I have a pretty gnarly bronchial infection going on right now, and I'm going to do my best to not talk too much today, which is no easy feat for Erin. Yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do my best. But the good news is, is that we have an amazing guest on today who Kyle will announce momentarily. We're really, really excited to have her on. She has a lot of great stuff to bring to the table. But first, I want to announce a little giveaway we're doing for our listeners. We're giving away eight ounces of Vital Proteins Gelatin. That's the grass-fed protein that Kyle and I both love and use on the reg. We're giving that away to two different people. So to enter to win, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a written review to let us know what you think about us. We'll announce the two winners on next week's show. Okay. All right, so I'm going to introduce our guest today. Kendra Gaffney attended Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, graduating with a bachelor's in food and nutrition, specializing in dietetics. She completed her dietetic internship at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. After becoming an RD, Kendra worked on the Florida Panhandle as a clinical dietitian for eight years. She then traveled the entire lower 48, searching for a place to open her dream business, a small group practice called Nutritious Thoughts. She chose Asheville, North Carolina to make her dream a reality. In addition to being the founder of Nutritious Thoughts, she is also a certified eating disorder registered dietitian, an approved supervisor through the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, and she serves as an advisory board member and support group supervisor for the local nonprofit organization, The Center for Disordered Eating. Nutritious Thoughts is a team of five dietitians specializing in eating disorders, sports nutrition, weight concerns, mindful and intuitive eating, and substance abuse and or co-occurring mental illness. Woo woo! <laughs> so welcome, Kendra Gaffney. Thank you, glad to be here. Yeah. All right, Kendra. So that was a mouthful. Um, <laughs> it really was. Yeah. I'm like, I feel very like underqualified in your presence. Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah. Totally so is. that's, that is your professional bio, but what about personal? How did you even get into this line of work to begin with? Sure. Well, um, there's so many layers to why this path chose me to get into the eating disorder profession. And really, it started with nutrition. And a little bit about me, I grew up in both Louisiana and Illinois, so I have a little southern Midwest flair. 
and I was a competitive gymnast for a good portion of my childhood. I also ran track and was a cheerleader and on the dance team. And I watched a lot of my family members and friends struggle with chronic dieting, emotional eating, restrictive and purge cycles over the and poor self-image overall. And so yeah. I really I received a lot of messages about food and movement and what a body should or shouldn't be. And so as I entered college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually started in personal um, training and then went into physical therapy and then had a nutrition class and shifted. And I realized I found my calling. And so I finished school um, with a degree in dietetics and then went on to my internship, ended up in Florida, did a lot of clinical work there. Every clinical position about a year and a half in, I was bored to say the least yep. um, and was able to have a small moment at a behavioral health unit across the street from the hospital. So I got to dip my toe a little bit in the eating disorder world and realize that that was where I wanted to be. And then shortly after working a little bit longer in dialysis, I actually left Florida with my husband and that's when we traveled and then dug our roots in Asheville. And I knew it was a place because there's a lot of healing and recovery here in the mountains of Asheville and Western North Carolina. So that's a little bit about me and my path to getting here today. That's awesome. Yeah. I've, I heard, that was one of the first things when I, Kendra and I met, um, you were one of the first people that I had met. We met through a mutual friend and yeah, I kept hearing people talk about the healing properties of Asheville, mm -hmm. but it's true. And there are so many healing, per, there are so many people in healing professions in Asheville. It's just got that vibe to it where mm -hmm. a lot of people say that Asheville will come and it will either, you know, chew you up and spit you back out like a different mm -hmm. person or embrace you and you'll stay. So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to dive into the first um, question here. And I think this is this is probably a basic one, but I think it's good to ask. So you've I've heard different things, eating disordered, eating disorders and disordered eating. So mm -hmm. what's the difference between the two? <laughs> well, not much. No. <laughs> OK. Um, eating disorders actually have a diagnosis. So they have a diagnosis in the DSM-5 um, with very specific criteria. So. For example, anorexia, one of the criteria is restriction of energy intake relative to requirement, and that leads to a significantly low body weight. And so there could be someone that has disordered eating patterns that may not necessarily fall under the significantly low body weight, but also might have a very similar diagnosis to anorexia, per se. So, and so disordered yeah, eating kind of weaves in and out of eating disorders as diagnostic criteria. So disordered eating could be as simple as um, I don't really want to eat breakfast because it kind of increases my appetite early in the day to someone having significant eating disorder behaviors that are purging restriction, restriction and binge eating that don't fit the specific, specific criteria, excuse me. Um, for the DSM. Does that okay. make sense? That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, so disordered eating is almost like sometimes a, a bridge to um, an eating disorder as 
as categorized by those kind of things that you have to hit. Yeah, it can be, but a lot of us have disordered eating things that show up in everyday life. It's just part of our culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is, um, that's a very good point about our culture. And it kind of leads <laughs> me <laughs> to, uh, my next question. I, so I was poking around a bit, um, at your website, nutritious thoughts before we, we interviewed because I've never actually met Kendra in, in person. Um, and I saw a lot of mention of health at every size, which isn't mm -hmm. something that I'm personally super familiar with. So I'd really love to hear more about it because I think it's such it's in such contrast to what our society preaches, right? You mentioned right. our culture and I, I always refer to it as diet culture. We're, we're taught how to diet at a very mm -hmm. young age. We're, we're very rarely taught how to just eat. Um, and we associate losing weight with getting healthier, right? We associate mm -hmm. leanness with health and quite frankly, happiness too, but that might be a topic for another discussion. <laughs> um, and I, I find that the way that we want to look like, images that we see in the media, for example, doesn't always align with what's in our best interest for health. And I think that's a really hard concept for many women to wrap their heads around because it is so much the opposite of what we're taught. But in this like quest, right, to get the six pack or whatever, you might stop menstruating, right? Or your thyroid might go completely haywire. Oftentimes I find with clients, I have to tell them, you know, if you're struggling with a chronic health issue, whether it's an autoimmune disease or adrenal fatigue or whatever, sometimes you have to table your weight loss expectations while you're trying to get healthy, but that's not always something that's well received. So mm -hmm. I guess, I, I guess I'm asking you two questions here. What does health at every size really mean? What does that look like? And what if health isn't somebody, someone's primary focus? What about the clients who just want to lose weight or look a certain way? How do you help someone make the switch from their focus being to want to look a certain way to instead focusing on health and letting that be their number one goal? Yes. Great question. <laughs> I feel like this is um, one of the hardest parts of what we do here at Nutritious Thoughts um, because it does go against everything that we're told from the time that we're born. <laughs> um, and not only for women, for men also now that we're finding out after people are speaking out a little bit more. So a little bit of background on how I got interested at Health at Every Size is Linda Bacon. Yes, my last name is Bacon. Um, <laughs> she wrote Health at Every Size and the book Body Respect. And I believe Health at Every Size was a big turning point for me. The message made so much sense. I spent years watching people around me judge their bodies and go through cycles of dieting and really not get very far with acceptance of who they are and where they are and it actually caused more health problems than creating health for them. And so the concept that all bodies are not created equal and that all bodies should be respected was revolutionary for me, uh, especially the way that we view bodies in our culture. And so Health at Every Size was a new idea. Um, and as a dietetics major, we're oftentimes taught that weight loss equals health. And I know that you've talked a little bit about um, the viewpoints of 
our schooling versus some of the more holistic practices, but we won't get into that. And so realizing that body weight alone was not the issue was revolutionary. And so Health at Every Size really supports people in adopting healthy habits for the sake of health versus well-being, or rather than, or rather than weight control. Um, it encourages eating a flexible diet, per se, and it values pleasure and honors your internal cues and your hunger, satiety, and appetite. It also is finding joy in moving one's body and accepting and respecting the different diversities of body types that we have. And so that's a little bit about health at every size. Um, let's see, I know you had multiple questions. Yeah, so I'm hearing Since you say primary. like in terms of body and movement mm -hmm. and food, I heard you say pleasure and joy. And those are mm -hmm. things, two words that we would often use to describe our relationship to our bodies or to movement or to food. So it, I can see how that concept is pretty revolutionary. So I guess my next question is how do you, how do you help somebody get there? Or maybe that's not even your job. You know, how do you help bridge that yeah. gap between what we're taught to believe in this diet culture and and this acceptance, this pleasure, and this joyful experience with just being ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like I said, it's one of the hardest parts of our job, and it takes time, lots of time, trust in your provider. So the client or the person you're working with needs to find trust in you to believe that your messages that they're telling you aren't hocus-pocus, um, and science to back it up. So we talk a lot about people's cycles before, if there's someone that chronically dieted and how that worked for them. Um, and once we're able to kind of get our toe into their world a little bit, you can start to see somewhat of a shift. And one of the things that we really like to use at Nutritious Thoughts is actually a book that our friend wrote. Um, it's called The Reclaiming Beauty Journey, and it is um, a very beautiful journal and wisdom deck that helps people find a different view of who they are. And so it takes the focus off being an object to being a subject. I'm like frantically, make it makes so much sense. I'm like frantically <laughs> taking notes. Like, even, okay. you mean, you're touching on these words again, time, trust. These are things we do not allow ourselves when it comes to diet. We're like, I need mm -hmm. to lose the weight and I need to lose it now. Right. Like, yeah, it's like, I'll, I'll, I remember I used to tell myself, you know what? I always wanted to just eat whole food. That's what I, all I wanted to do. Right. I wanted to be able to just do that with, with trust. And I was like, once I lose the weight, then I'll allow myself to do that. But it's like, <laughs> it's not until we give ourselves the time, the space, the grace and the trust in ourselves and our body that we can really make that, that shift is what I've found. So I just, absolutely, I've loved that everything that you just said. And one of the things we also share with people when they come to Nutritious Thoughts, we say, yes, there are plenty of providers out there that will help you attempt to achieve what you're asking for. And if this does not feel like a good fit, you're more than welcome to leave and not follow through with our suggestions. Because there's plenty of dietitians out there that will help someone with that focus. 
Uh, it's just something we're really upfront about in our assessment that weight is never one of our primary goals and behavior change is the area that we focus on and weight could be a side effect. I have goose pimples yeah. right now. <laughs> I know. It's so great. And especially when you talk about having to trust the person who, you know, is is counseling you because mm -hmm. you're trying to listen to one person and, you know, drown out all of the other noise from the media, from magazines, from, you know, other people in your life and your own head and just trust that this person is giving you permission to be okay. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, that's a lot. I, I feel like that relationship um, probably takes a lot of, um, a lot of effort in the beginning before somebody can really start to buy into that. Yes. The average time that um, someone seeks treatment from a nutrition provider or a mental health provider for eating disorders is five to 10 years. And so, if we're talking specifically around eating disorders, it is a long journey and you are in it with them for a long time. So you become part of their life. Yeah. And that is what I disliked about clinical work for myself was that I felt like I was just providing information to the wall and that this person was never going to benefit from anything that I was doing in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of clinical dietitians feel the same way. I mean, that's just, you know, it's like the urgent care of dietetics. I mean, you have mm -hmm. like this such a small window to kind of like get your message and there's very little individualization that you can do. And, and you know, you're you're so limited in the backstory that you can even get from the person. So, yeah, it's it is. Um, it is just such a small piece and in in their it just can never be compared to what it would be like actually having a one-on-one -on -one session with somebody that, you know, you weren't paying attention to the time. So, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you guys do a lot of work with mindful and intuitive eating. So talk about what that process is like. How do you introduce those concepts to clients and what's the difference between the two? Yeah, sure. Um, it's very individualized on how we introduce mindful and intuitive eating because in people that are struggling with anorexia and bulimia, the introduction of it is a lot later than someone that might be struggling with binge eating disorder. And someone that might not have a diagnosed eating disorder and they are struggling with some disordered eating patterns, it just kind of depends on where they're at. And yeah. um, mindful and intuitive eating, some people lump them together as one thing, but they are two separate things, but they do have a very harmonious relationship. And so a little bit about intuitive eating, um, it's a form of attunement of the mind, body, and food. And so it includes hunger and fullness cues, respecting your body, understanding what type of nourishment is good for your body specifically, regardless of how you feel about its shape. And so there's three core principles to intuitive eating. And one is eating for physical rather than emotional reasons, relying on internal hunger and satiety cues, and unconditional permission to eat. And I think the unconditional permission to eat is a very challenging piece for people to grasp because it yeah. goes against any sort of message that we're, that we're fed, <laughs> pun intended, um, 
and yeah, our there's no control. diet culture. Mm-hmm. There's no control with that. I mean, it, that is essentially truly giving up the control of deciding when and how much you're going to eat and just listening to your, mm-hmm. to your body and not, not, you know, arguing against it. Right. And so someone that might be really disconnected from their body that's been struggling with eating disorder behaviors, this is not a place to start with them. Okay. To be like, okay, well now feel your body. And yeah, they're going, yeah. ah! So <laughs> scary. It's, it's a, such a it's scary so place It's so scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is introduced at different parts in the recovery journey for different people. So okay. a little bit about mindfulness and the differences. Um, mindfulness has a lot to do with being present. So deliberately paying attention and being non-judgmental. So you can emotionally eat mindfully. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, it does. So it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to be a physical need, but mindfulness can come in adjunct to intuitive eating. Okay. And the biggest piece about mindful eating is the non-judgmental part. It's huge and really challenging message to get across because the thoughts that roll around in our head can be very judgmental about our choices um, and our actions. Yeah. So how do you how do you challenge that with a client who's ready to be introduced to these ideas? Mm-hmm. Um, we have a few different ways that we might incorporate it into our work. Um, One of them is a mindful journal and it'll actually have hunger and fullness scales that they'll rate before and after each eating experience. They'll put whether they were distracted or not distracted, whether they were sitting or standing or in their car. They'll also put if there are any notable emotions present. And so we'll work with them, not necessarily around the actual foods that are being eaten, but around the emotions that are coming up around the eating experience and whether they were able to be present or not. Yeah. Uh, we also do eating experiences at our office. So we do um, sometimes with a ch- like chocolate exercises or different varieties of foods on a plate. And we'll go through a very mindful experience where we look at it, we think about where it came from, we think about other senses to the touch or the smell, and then we roll it around in our mouth and see what it feels like, and we chew it, and then we see if we can kind of feel it go all the way down into the stomach and see if we can notice our physical um, body signals that show up when we have that experience. So That's it awesome. really puts you back in touch with, with your body, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I would say that, mm-hmm. you know, as somebody who struggled with disordered eating for 15 years, that was the biggest part of my recovery mm-hmm. was, and you know, it, I really did it through yoga um, because mm-hmm. yoga was the way like back into my body, I guess, because I, it was yeah. such a scary place for me to be that I, I checked out. I checked out every single chance that I got and I usually did it through food. Um, And so Mm -hmm. yoga was the first time that I was like, oh, okay, this is what it feels like to be in my own skin. And it's actually not so bad. So that is one thing that, and it's kind of hard to get across to people sometimes, but I, I like that. I like that idea of the exercise of just really being as present as you can with, with your food. And I also really enjoy what you said about you can eat emotionally um, (laughs) and mindfully at the same time. I, I think we have such a, 
a horrible idea of emotional eating and people are like, I'm a, an emotional eater and therefore I am bad. And what, one thing right. that I try to get across to people is like, you, that's okay. You're an emotional being, you're human, right? So of course you're going to mm -hmm. eat with some emotion. I, I think I wrote a blog post about this a couple of years ago when you accidentally eat like a jar of almond butter or something like that, I think was mm -hmm. the title. And it's like, you know, I did, I sat there and I ate like three quarters of a jar of almond butter because I was feeling really frazzled, but I gave myself mm -hmm. permission to do it. And I was mindful. I was present throughout the entire experience and I did it without judgment. Exactly. Like you said, and man, is that such a different experience of just like, such a different experience. yeah, just like going through the kitchen and eating everything that's not nailed down and then like hating yourself and feeling like you did something bad and feeling shame right. and all of that so I um yeah and even even sitting down to eat with the tv on and not really paying at all attention to what you're eating and the pace that you're eating I think mm -hmm. even participating in an exercise like this would kind of like at least for me because I definitely tend to be a fast eater it would kind of you know wake up wake me up a bit to how rushed some of my meals can be and how not at all present I am with you know each bite and really enjoying the process of eating rather than just kind of like eat, getting it done so that you can just you know move on to the next go thing. back to watching move your show on. yeah yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it's a really um personal intimate place to be with someone when they're experiencing yeah. their body for the first time, especially with food present. And so that trust piece comes in a lot earlier. So we don't necessarily force people into doing something that makes them super uncomfortable until we have developed a relationship where they feel safe with us to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And before we do that, we oftentimes do the mindful eating cycle by Michelle May. Have you heard of it? No, what's that? No. Well, it's a, it's a cycle and it talks about like, why am I choosing to eat? When do I eat? What do I choose to eat? How much do I choose to eat? And where do I spend my energy afterwards? And so we go through that as a binge eating cycle, if that's where they're at, or a restrictive eating cycle, if that's where, they at, where they're at, or the mindful eating cycle. And so it's helpful to kind of dig a little bit deeper into some of the reasons why we choose to eat and how much and what types of foods we choose in those moments. Wow. Making or lack cool. thereof. Making a note of that one for sure. I'm going to walk <laughs> yeah. away with a lot of resources I'm really excited about. Um, Yay. All right. So moving on here, and this is a bit of a self-indulgent question because I really want your thoughts um, on before and after photos because I feel like they're all the rage on social media right now. Maybe not right now. Maybe I'm just more paying more attention now. I don't know. I personally find them to be pretty triggering for myself, but I also know that many of my clients feel the same way. So I'm assuming that mm -hmm. there's there's people out there that that feel the same way and when I say triggering I mean that it really moves me from a place of self-acceptance and self-love and moves me back toward that old voice of look how happy you could be if you weren't you and to be mm -hmm. clear I'm definitely not knocking anyone who shares or posts these this is really more of a dig at diet culture and much less a dig mm -hmm. at individuals um, and I understand that people probably feel really proud of their hard work and want to share that. But I also see that 
these images are being used to sell something, right? Whether that's a cleanse or a diet program or a supplement, but underneath it all, what are we really selling? We're selling the idea that if you lose weight, your problems disappear. And so Mm -hmm. I don't agree with that um, because I've certainly lost all the weight and I've been at my skinniest self and guess what? My problems were all still there. Um, So I'd love to hear about, about your thoughts on this. Do you find these images to be problematic for your clients? Does this come up at all? And what message do you think that these before and after photos might send to people? Yes. Yes, yes, and yes. And I don't necessarily feel like it's new, but I feel like social media is kind of new. Because if you think back to even commercials about SlimFast in the oh, 80s, so like they were doing before and after pictures then. Good point. It's, it's been part of... Um, look how happy you can be. And so when you say that, I totally resonate with what they're trying to sell. Uh, And sometimes you don't even know what product they're trying to sell. They're just selling happiness. And so the before and after for me, and oftentimes for clients, before you were bad, after you were good. And so showing that fat is bad and thinner is better is the message that comes across a lot for the clients that I work with. Mm -hmm. And so the thinner you can be, then the better you can be, which leads to, you know, detrimental eating disorder behaviors and often death. And so it's a very scary message that gets pushed a lot. And so it's just out there for anyone and everyone. And I agree with you, this is not a dig at individuals, but it's something that has been created because we love praise and we love approval and acceptance. And if the message at center is more acceptable and you have had weight loss and you put it up there, guess what? You're probably gonna get praise and feel more accepted in that moment. But what happens when that's not working for you? Then all of a sudden, are you not accepted? by your loved ones. And so that's the challenging part. And that's where the reclaiming beauty work comes in a lot with seeing yourself as a subject versus an object. And when you put yourself out there in a before and after picture, you're showing yourself as an object. Wow. Wow. And so it becomes very (laughs) triggering for a lot of people. And I know the word trigger is used a lot because it just is. But we work with our clients on naming the emotion that you felt when you saw that image. Did it make you sad? Did it make you jealous? Did it make you um, motivated? Like what actually showed up for you to feel this, this trigger? And then the therapist can oftentimes dig deeper and do that work with them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's so, yeah. I'm just like blown away by just the thought process and just even being able to put a name to how you're feeling because I mean I don't think I've I don't think most people do that we just know that we feel bad and we and we're not quite sure how we feel like do are we jealous are we motivated Mm -hmm. do we feel less than so I think once you are able to put a name to it and identify it then it's it's kind of it's easier to work with rather than just this cloud of like, I don't know how I'm, I don't know what this is, but I I don't like it. You know, being able to identify it must make it easier to just kind of then talk through that. It can, it most certainly can. Um, But it doesn't mean that you have to know right away 
what it is yeah. for you. It does take some digging on a therapeutic um, side of this whole journey to find what feelings, like getting words to actual physical feelings in the body. Yeah. Um, well, in this kind of leads to the next question here. In functional nutrition, we deal a lot with getting to the root cause of problems. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times this is going to mean adjusting somebody's diet to use food as medicine. So these adjustments can be using therapeutic elimination diets like gluten-free, low FODMAP, paleo, even something like a low histamine diet, which is super hard to follow. Um, the last thing we want to do is create more stress for someone, but dietary changes, which we all know, can be really stressful. Mm -hmm. um, so knowing how many people have dealt with or are dealing with disordered eating, but also recognizing the fact that there are certain dietary modifications that could have a huge impact on somebody's healing and health um, in terms of what's going on in their body. What is your approach to balancing the two? Um, is it possible that you can make these dietary adjustments in a way that can still incorporate some of the approaches you use at Nutritious Thoughts. And when I ask this question, I immediately think of orthorexia. So I'm wondering if you can also kind of go into what that is. Because I, I mean, I know, at least for myself, when I have gone on a full elimination diet, it's, you know, you just want so badly to be to be better. Um, so mm -hmm. it, it's such a slippery slope. You can you can kind of start to get into that orthorexia mindset without even realizing it because you're just trying to follow the rules. So right. how, how can you, we do this in, a, in a, a more compassionate way? Yes, great question. <laughs> um, one of the things that we talk about, and I don't know if it's a real thing, it's kind of a term we stole from trauma-informed care, but we talk about eating disorder-informed care and knowing what you're looking for within the clients that you're working with. Because oftentimes there are certain predispositions that put someone at a higher risk for an eating disorder, such as trauma or ADHD or depression and anxiety or a family history of eating disorders that could also play into a genetic component and if there is a triggering event such as the expectations to follow a certain diet, it can really accelerate someone's decision to follow some of their disorder thoughts, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. And so our profession, it's really challenging because everyone follows a diet, technically, right? And the word diet gets a bad rap because we have a lot of fad diets, but everyone has some form of diet if we're eating at all. And so we definitely can use some dietary modifications whenever we're working with certain clients, but we have to make sure that they are physically nourished and in a psychological state to be able to follow through without attaching to the eating disorder and going deeper. Yeah. 
And so it really just depends on the state that the person's in and their intentions behind wanting to follow the diet. Because we've had clients that will even create a certain disease state per se to be able to go get recommendations to follow a certain diet. We get a lot of food allergies or assuming that they have something so they're automatically going to follow a certain diet without really getting a professional opinion. Yeah. And so intentions are a huge thing that we talk about before adding in too much of a therapeutic diet per se. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's really just like figuring out more of where they're at with their relationship around food before mm -hmm. you even kind of broach that topic. And and perhaps maybe not doing something like that um, in in the first, you know, couple sessions or few sessions and just take the time to get to know someone because it's very easy to fill out the uh, the forms, you know, mm -hmm. and, and answer the way that you think somebody might want you to answer. But then once you actually have the chance to talk to them and dig a little bit deeper, you might pick up on some other things that totally change how you're going to approach things. So I really like that, just taking the time to kind of figure out more about where they're at before recommending something like that. Yeah, and you may not know, and you may get halfway into it and realize, uh-oh, this person is taking it a lot further, or they're not willing to stop when it's now time to reintroduce certain things. Yeah. And so this is where orthorexia can play a huge role. And to be quite honest, the the place that, we, that I live in, Kyle, Asheville, North Carolina, there's a lot of this happening with the significant um, focus on health to where it becomes unhealthy. It's almost like you're attaching to so many messages about healthy eating per se that there's not enough left to nourish yourself. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, it's so true. I mean, literally you hear of, you know, a new way of eating, I feel like all the time. And there's always that one person there that, you know, is, is there to make you a believer because of their personal experience. So, you know, if you're not feeling your optimal self and, you know, you might just end up bouncing from one diet to the next, just kind of like looking for this magic bullet and, mm -hmm. and in doing so, you know, you might not be able to fully leave the last diet that you were following behind. So yeah, it just like one brick on top of another. And before you know it, you have all these conflicting, you know, um, no and yes, lists that you list yes. that you follow. And then you're, you're truly just left with very, very little. Right. And if someone has a genetic predisposition, they, have such a harder time reintroducing things. If someone doesn't, oftentimes they're able to be like, okay, well, what actually is going to be best for me? Let me see if I can follow it. And yeah. so the idea of food as medicine in the eating disorder world is such a foreign is such a foreign message because food is really important in the eating disorder world because someone has to be nourished to do the work, but it's the least important because it normally has nothing to do with food. Yeah. Wow. In the grand scheme. Completely of true. And I can relate to that on so many levels. And I've certainly been in this position both 
professionally with clients. And like you said, Kendra, it's so, so hard. And then personally too, even in my more recent history, when I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and I was simultaneously also diagnosed with uh, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And then I put myself on these two crazy elimination diets and there, it, mm-hmm. I was like a strung out mess. And at a certain point <laughs> I had to be like, you know, at what point does the stress of these two diets outweigh any of the potential benefits? And I just essentially had to be like, I can't, I can't do this. Like self-preservation and com- self-compassion. I can't do this to myself anymore. Um, but I'm fortunate enough to have, you know, 50, you know, almost a decade of recovery behind me to be able to do that, but not the average person does. And it just, right. it just gets so hard and so, so messy. That reminds me of that saying that we had just, Erin, you tagged me in a post on Facebook and it was, um, it's better to have the right attitude eating the wrong food than having the wrong attitude eating the right food. And I just, I love (laughs) that because it's so true. It's so true. If you're beating yourself up all the time, but eating like the perfect diet, I mean, how, how great are you really going to feel? Totally. Whatever that is. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And there's, there's also, Kendra, something you said made me think of this. I've seen this floating around quite a bit. When you eat, you're either fighting disease or like adding to it or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. And I hate that so much because it's not just the food, right? It's not just the food that makes disease or makes us well. There's so many other, other things at play here. And I think, you know, not to belabor the point because we've already just addressed that, but it's, um, no, but I think you're going to see more research that it's coming out now about how much our mental health plays a role in our physical health. And there's more and more research coming out about, um, the depression and anxiety that's actually causing some of the physical health concerns that we're blaming weight on. And so I think you're going to continue to see more and more of it, not just being about the food. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I recently within the past few months wrote a blog post about gaining weight. I gained about 10 pounds or so and was shocked that I felt such an an internal struggle with, with that weight gain. Um, I really started to question my identity and even now it's almost embarrassing to talk about because I'm like, here I am this, this health professional and I gained weight on purpose and it was really hard for me. Um, it was so well received. So many people shared it and it, it bounced around quite a bit. It's to this point, my most popular blog post to date, Um, but it, it just shows how many people can relate to that idea. I think so many people do identify themselves with looking a certain way, right? Even with a certain weight, I have certain clients in their thirties and forties who are trying to get back to high school weight because that in their head is who they are. So how do we disassociate weight from identity and self-worth? It's, you know, I think it's one thing to say it. I think I'm pretty good at saying it, but then how do you actually achieve it yourself or how do you help your clients achieve that? Sure. And I want to say that's where I first saw your name because I actually shared that one. Oh, well, funny. Thank you for sharing. I know. I don't know. I don't remember where it came from, but I was like, oh, who's this? Um, And I also think it's really important as professionals to also be human. And that we, we also live in the same culture with the same messages as our clients. And so I think it's really important to just own 
being human and not having to be the perfect professional that never struggles with anything. Just yeah, thank you. I needed to hear that. Because um, <laughs> we're all in recovery from something, whether it's grief or relationship with food or relationship with our partner. There's all kinds of things that we're always recovering from. And so I think just being human is important. Um, and so back to the disassociating weight from identity and self-worth. And I touched a little bit on the Reclaiming Beauty book because we use it a lot. Uh, but I also think it's important to realize that the body image piece for a lot of the clients that I work with is the last part to get the most attention. It's the hardest part to disappear when someone's been in full physical recovery from an eating disorder because it has so much to do with how they see themselves and their identity versus um, it just being about their weight. And so we can stop behaviors, we can provide balanced nutrition that's best for them, they can be doing joyful movement, we work on the exploration of how they feel in their body when they're eating and moving and the hope is that the more nourishment and not just by food but by messages that we're telling ourselves the quieter the negative thoughts in our head and so we begin to see ourselves as something more than just our body and so some people that happens really quickly you can almost see the shift with um, proper nutrition their brain quiets down their messages get more positive in their head it's pretty amazing to watch but not that doesn't happen for everyone um, oftentimes there's a lot of therapeutic work that still needs to happen from maybe past traumas or experiences that they've had in life to not feel good enough and whenever we're being told that you will feel better if you're thinner then the attachment to that mm -hmm. is so strong so we try to get people to a a physical um, stabilized place before some of the intense body image work happens. We don't focus on weight here much at all. If we weigh, we do blind weights. Um, we're really looking at behavior change and balancing nutrition and movement if that's part of someone's plan um, and really getting them to a place to be able to dig a little bit deeper therapeutically. I don't yeah, know if that helps at all. No, I, I, I know. It, there's answer. no easy answer, and of course, <laughs> I, you know, and and I know that, but that mm -hmm. that's all really helpful, and, and I'm, you know, I'm asking these questions too for the people who are listening, um, and I think that's all, that's all super super helpful. Um, I think oftentimes eating disorders are are exclusively associated with women, um, but that is definitely not the case, which you mm -hmm. had mentioned briefly earlier. Are there really any differences between men and women around this? Are there any trends that you've noticed in your practice? Um, yes. I mean, we've noticed they come from all walks of life and there's often a stigma that eating disorders are a teenage, middle to upper class, white girl disease, um, but we are being proven that that is incorrect and that eating disorders are showing up in multiple 
cultures. They are showing up in our history from even the 1300s. They come from all socioeconomical statuses and race and gender. Um, and the stigmas make it hard for people to step forward because they feel like if they don't fall under that criteria, then they, they probably aren't struggling with it. But there's going to be more and more about a variety of people that are coming forward that are struggling with eating disorders. I mean, there's more than 40 million people diagnosed with eating disorders in the U.S. right now, and that's just diagnosed. And so um, there's going to be more to come about it affecting all different types of people. Do you notice any trends about with uh, men around, you know, um, like is it more common when they're coming from a sports and an exercise kind of mentality? I think of, you know, the the bodybuilders who are only eating, you know, chicken breast and broccoli. Yeah. Um, you know, that can become really... Mm-hmm. crazy I mean uh, you know only only really feeling like you can allow yourself certain foods or else you're you're not going to get the results that you want it's it's just it's it's so across the board you know whether you're reading a magazine as a woman and seeing you know how to be bikini ready in six weeks or you're reading um, a, a weightlifting magazine as a man and feeling like you're you're too small. Um, yeah. So yeah. That, that. It, yes, that is definitely an avenue that we get um, more traffic per se at Nutritious Thoughts. And I think those people that fall into more of the, I want to be more athletic or more muscular, um, seem to step forward sooner. Um, because they they want to see physical results and they don't really realize that what they're doing is disordered yet. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, and so we see that often, but we also have um, men that struggle with eating disorders that just don't want to take up space because they don't feel worthy. And so there's both sides to it for men. Also, you don't see it as much in the public eye because a lot of men aren't speaking up just yet, but it's starting to come. It's starting to come. So let's talk about eating disorder support. And I don't know if this is true for everywhere, but this is a question I want to throw out there because it's come up quite a bit, actually just this week alone. Um, I've had clients express concern over the fact that there, there's a great deal of, or a, a great lack of support, um, with nutritionists in regards to eating disorder recovery. Um, what people seem to be getting when they're meeting with, with nutritionists is a lot of talk about portioning and measuring and tracking food, which is funny because that actually mirrors my own experience when I first met with a nutritionist 20 years ago. Um, to me, this seems counterintuitive um, because somebody struggling with disordered eating already has a lot of food chatter, already has a lot of food fear and restriction. They're probably doing a lot of this food logging and weighing and portioning. So to me, it just seems like more of the same. Um, And to use that word again, I found food tracking and measuring extremely triggering. I mean, even now to this day. So would you, is this something that you might agree with? And for somebody who might be seeking support with disordered eating, what advice do you have 
about finding a trusted professional? Um, is there something that people should be looking for specifically? Are there red flags to maybe stay away from? Um, I wish you worked with distance clients because clearly the work that you're doing is so, you know, is in, there's great need for it. Um, but I just love to hear any of your thoughts or, or pieces of advice for people that might be listening. Sure, sure. So a little bit from the part about food journaling and tracking and measuring. Um, for some people, it is triggering it brings up a lot more chatter for them and for some people mm, it's comforting okay. and so i think knowing your audience and knowing um, what's going to be effective for each person and so we don't give blanket approaches at all here because someone struggling with the same diagnosed eating disorder may find comfort in being able to see exactly how they can nourish themselves at the beginning obviously it's not where we want to stay. We work a lot on um, breaking away from measuring and looking more at food as a whole picture. But sometimes at the beginning it is comforting and it's one of the only ways that someone feels safe enough to actually restore weight. Yeah, that, that does make sense. sense. In an outpatient setting. In an inpatient setting, you're, you're oftentimes just fed you get a plate, you have to eat 100% of it, or you're too fed, and so there's less of that choice. But in an outpatient setting, we want them to have a choice in it. Um, we want them to feel safe at the beginning, and then we can work on challenging, breaking away from some of those, um, some of those tools, I guess. Oftentimes, someone that struggles with OCD is more apt to feel comfort in measuring and tracking. And so it does play into their OCD a little bit at the beginning, but it also gets them to a place to be able to do some some more work. And so sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not. And that's probably um, the case for, for so it, everything. You know, that's certainly the case for the work that I do. It's like, mm -hmm. this might work for somebody and it might not work for somebody else. And you just kind of have to listen, pay attention. Like you said, know your audience. And if something's not working, course correct. So that, I mean, that may, does make perfect sense. Yeah. And then as for looking for someone, um, we wish there were more dietitians that loved working with people that were struggling with eating disorders, but it's really, um, it's really far and few between actually. And so one of the things you can look for is credentialing. So if someone's a certified eating disorder registered dietitian, they'll have credentials after their name, C-E-D-R-D. -D. Or if a therapist is credentialed as a specialist, it'll say C-E-D-S. And so oftentimes those people can help you find treatment in your area. Um, you can also go to the National Eating Disorder Association or a NIDA website, and they have a directory of people, and so you can look in your area. They also have questions on how to interview your professional team. And so I think that that can be an important piece to know what, what types of questions to ask your dietitian to see if they would be a good fit for you. Yes, that's that super, super helpful. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, and it actually leads into the next question that I had. Um, 
So if somebody who's listening to this podcast is concerned that they might have some unhealthy habits around food, so keeping in mind that the podcast is not meant to diagnose or treat, what are some words of advice you have for them? Are there any kind of first steps you recommend them taking to figure out if this is um, something that, you know, is, is a problem in their life that they need to have addressed? Sure. Um, I think it's really important for people to know that they're not alone and it's a very lonely space to be in when you're struggling with, with an eating disorder. And so knowing that you're not alone is one of the most important things that I could probably say right now. Um, but reaching out, looking for a local support in your area, if you have support groups in your area, they have EDAs, so eating disorder anonymous groups that meet. I wouldn't suggest going to an OA or an FA meeting um, if you're struggling with an eating disorder. Oftentimes it can really conflict and exacerbate some of the behaviors. Um, but look, look in your, look online and see if there's any support groups in your area. And if you're having trouble, honestly, you're more than welcome to reach out to us at Nutritious Thoughts and we can help try to find somebody in your area. We do this often. People reach out and they don't know where to go. And we have some tools we can tap into and see if there's anyone within a certain radius of where you might be. And so that's open door if you need it. Uh, we're lucky enough in Asheville, North Carolina, to have the Center for Disordered Eating. They provide free support groups and resources, and they have a free library, and they do a lot of community education. And so I think we feel spoiled here, um, and it is challenging to find a lot of support out there. Oftentimes you'll find them closer to big cities, um, but they do have online programs like Bright Heart Health has online support groups that you can join in. Um, they also have intensive outpatient programs that take insurance. So there's, there's different treatments out there, but maybe doing a search for some local treatment in your area and looking for eating disorder professionals might be the first step. That's great. I feel like we've covered so much already. Um, so I think it's probably time to start wrapping up. But um, I wanted to ask what was new with Nutritious Thoughts? You guys are so active all the time in the community. Are there <laughs> any events coming up that you would like our listeners to know about? Sure. If you're in the Asheville area, um, we have the National Eating Disorder Association Walk, which will be November 11th. It'll be downtown Asheville. Um, feel free to contact us or go to the website to uh, sign up, nutritious-thoughts.com. Uh, we also have a Holiday Sir Thrival group where it's I helping people thrive during the holiday season. It'll be a great Wednesday morning group. We're also starting Mindful Mondays, so it's a free group. You can bring your lunch and share a positive meal eating experience. And we have a free support group on Thursdays from 6 to 7. We always have groups going, so if you want to learn more, you can always go to our website or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. That's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time out to answer all of these questions. I think it's been incredibly helpful for Erin and I, and I know that our listeners are going to feel the same. So uh, thanks for everyone for listening. And as usual, subscribe, leave a review, and send in any questions that you'd like us to cover in a future episode. Thanks for listening.
Thank you both so Thanks, much. Kendra. Much appreciated. Bye. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you. Bye.